All right. In our Sunday school lessons, what we're doing is we're studying the subject of the biblical covenants. In the Bible, uh, it's divided into the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, otherwise known as the Old Testament and the New Testament. So our very Bibles themselves are um, defined by the two great covenants of the scriptures and the two that take up the most uh, time and space and information. There are, in fact, five covenants in the Bible. There's the covenant that God made with Noah, the covenant God made with Abraham, the covenant God made with David, the covenant that God made with Israel called the Old Covenant, and then the covenant that Jesus made with his people called the New Covenant. Now, the reason why covenants are important is because covenants define relationships. We had a marriage here yesterday. Uh, Cindy and Larkin got married. They're here this morning. And um, they entered into a covenant. And a covenant is just simply an oath sworn promise where you swear uh, before God two terms of the relationship. And so the Davidic covenant that we're talking about involved God making an oath sworn promise to David that he was going to do three things in relationship to David. David, of course, was one of the great kings of the nation of Israel. And uh, what God promised David that he was going to do is that he was going to, number one, establish his throne forever, which means that even though David was going to die, his son would sit on the throne, and then that son's son would sit on the throne, and then that son's son would sit on the throne. And David would have an unbroken line of descendants who would sit on the throne of Israel forever. The second thing that God promised to David is that his son would be in a very special way the son of God. He would be uh, in a very unique relationship with God different uh, than any other kings ever had um, experienced. And then the third thing that he promised to David is that his son would build uh, the temple of the Lord. Now, this, these three promises to David were fulfilled uh, in Solomon and in the line of kings that came from David. Of course, uh, Solomon sat on the throne of David. Solomon was, in a very special way, uh, God's anointed son in that. God made him uh, to have more wisdom than anybody ever had on the, on the earth, ever before or since. God made him uh, the wealthiest king of his day, and he, he uh, presided over the largest kingdom that Israel ever had. And so he was um, mightily blessed by God and had special communion with God uh, in a unique way uh, that no one else ever had. And then, of course, Solomon built the house. He built the temple of the Lord, didn't he? Um, and then, of course, Solomon had a son, Rehoboam, and uh, there was a whole succession of sons that flowed then down through time called a dynasty. And all of these men sat on the throne of David um, in Jerusalem. And while the northern ten tribes did break away and form a separate nation called Israel, nevertheless, over Judah, the southern kingdom, David always had a son sitting on the throne until the time of the captivity. And in the time of the captivity, um, the, the two kingdoms of Israel had, 
had sinned to the point that God uh, brought them under judgment and they were carried away to Babylon. Well, once the nation was invaded and the kingdom was destroyed, the uh, question that the children of Israel had in Psalm 89 to God was, uh, what about the Davidic uh, covenant? What about the promise you made that the son of David would sit on the throne of Israel forever? And the prophets, Isaiah and Ezekiel, both responded and said, out of the root of David is going to come the one that's going to sit on the throne of David, and he's going to sit on it forever. And of course, that led us then to our memory verse that we quoted together this morning, when the angel said to Mary, fear not. You found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David, because through Mary, Jesus was a direct physical descendant of David. And so he was going to be called. Um, um, he, he was going to be called the son of the highest because that's what he was, the son of God. And the Lord God will give unto him the throne of his father, David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There shall be no end. So ultimately what we see is in many of these covenants, there was an immediate fulfillment in the immediate descendants from the one with whom the covenant was made. But there was an ultimate fulfillment of these covenants in the person of Jesus Christ. And so uh, Jesus Christ was the ultimate and final seed of Abraham. And Jesus Christ was the ultimate and final seed of David. And so what we find then is that the Davidic kingdom didn't end and the throne was not lost. What we see is Jesus being the ultimate fulfillment of the promise of the Davidic covenant. You remember the promises were three, that someone would sit on the throne of David forever Okay, of his kingdom, there would be no end. And of course, Jesus is sitting on the throne of David and he will for all eternity. Secondly, that um, he would be in a special way, the son of God. And of course, Jesus Christ is God's only begotten son. And then the third thing is, and this brings us to our study today, is that Jesus Christ is going to build a temple for God. And so we see that... Um, in a, in, a, in a limited way, Solomon fulfilled all of the promises of the Davidic covenant, but in the ultimate and, and complete way, Jesus fulfilled all those three promises himself. And this is what we see as we read the Old Testament. It's always pointing forward to Christ. And that's why the New Testament is really the fulfillment of the Old Testament and the completion of all the promises uh, that were made there. Now, what we want to do then today is we want to talk about this third aspect. We've previously talked about how that Jesus is the son of David and thus part of the dynasty. We previously talked about the fact that he is, of course, the son of God and as such uh, is seated on the throne of David now in heaven uh, by virtue of the resurrection and now today, what we want to talk about is how is Jesus building God a temple? So let's turn, please, in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, the book of Ephesians, the second chapter. 
Uh, before we go there, let's go to um, Matthew chapter 16. I'm sorry. Matthew chapter 16. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew chapter 16. Beginning at verse 13, Matthew 16, 13. It says, When Jesus came into the coasts or the borders of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, and some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Peter got it right. Uh, All sorts of people had all sorts of ideas about who Jesus was. But Peter says, you're the promised Messiah. You are the one that the Old Testament spoke of that would come and save us from our sins and save us from hell and save us so that we could uh, be reconciled to God, redeemed from our sins, adopted as his children, given eternal life and have a place in heaven forever. That's you. That's who you are. And Jesus responded in verse 17. Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. In other words, he's saying, Peter, you didn't just figure out this on your own by your own intellect. God opened your mind to be able to see who I really am. And so it ever is. People look at Jesus and they say, oh, he was a great man or, oh, he was a great prophet. But the only people who believe that he was truly the son of God and the promised Messiah and the savior of the world is those in whose hearts God has worked and whose eyes God has opened so that they can see him for who he really is. Now, Jesus says in verse 18, he says, and I say also unto thee that thou art Peter And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And the rock upon which Jesus is building his church is this confession that thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And so uh, the church is built upon by Jesus Christ uh, and built with those who make that confession of faith. But the thing I want to point out to you in verse 18 is Jesus says, I will build my church. So Jesus is in a building program. He's building something. He's building a building. And here he calls it the church. Now, having seen that Jesus is building, the question is, is, What is he building? What is this thing called the church? So now let's turn to um, uh, Ephesians chapter 2. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, we'll start reading at verse 18. 
Ephesians 2.18. It says, For through Him, that is, through Jesus, we both, that is, Jews and Gentiles, have access by one Spirit unto the Father. So Jews and Gentiles have access to the Father by Jesus Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. Great statement there on the Trinity, by the way. Verse 19. Now therefore you, you Gentiles, every, uh, Gentiles, everyone is not a Jew. We're all Gentiles here today. I don't think there's any Jews here today. So he says, now therefore you, verse 19, are no more strangers and foreigners, that is, outside of the covenant community of God's people, but now you're fellow citizens with the saints. You're now inside the kingdom. A citizen is a member of a kingdom, right? So you're now in the kingdom of God. And you are of the household of God. You're now in the family of God. So he talks about a kingdom. He talks about a household. And now he's going to talk about a temple. Verse 20. And are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building, this is the building Jesus is building, in whom all the building fitly framed together grows unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. So what is revealed to us in the New Testament is that God has a new kind of temple that his son is building, the son of David is building, Jesus. And the temple that he is building is the church. And so it used to be that the temple was this magnificent stone structure. And inside of it were the, was the altar and the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant and the candelabra and the table of showbread and the altar of incense and all these other things that were in there. But now under the new covenant, it's not a physical building. This physical building, all this does is keep the bugs off and the rain out. This building is not holy. It's just an auditorium. Okay? What the building consists of is the people themselves. And so what we want to do is turn to First um, Peter chapter 2. And we'll see that the people themselves actually make up the building. First Peter chapter 2. In First Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, Peter says, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and all hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere or the pure milk of the word, that you might grow thereby, if so be you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. To whom coming as unto a living stone. So let's just stop right there for a second. Jesus here is called a stone. But it's not just any kind of a stone, he's a living stone. Now, that sounds kind of oxymoronic, doesn't it? When you think of a stone, you don't ever think it's alive. And if something's alive, you would never classify it as a stone, right? It's kind of like talking about a hot snowball. It's, it's a contradiction in terms, a living stone, okay? But, but we'll follow this through. He picks up this metaphor of the temple. To whom coming is unto a living stone, rejected 
by men, but chosen by God and valuable. Verse 5, you also as living stones. So not only is Jesus a living stone, we're living stones. What are all these rocks doing? Well, you also as living stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Now, the Old Testament temple was built with huge blocks of stone, a dead stone, stone that they chiseled out of the mountain. The New Testament temple is built with living stones, namely people who have been redeemed by Christ, saved people. So what we have here is a group of living stones, and together they constitute a spiritual house, not a physical one, a spiritual one. And of course, we then are not only the house, each of us being a living stone that make up that house that Jesus is building, but then we also minister within that house as priests offering up spiritual sacrifices. And once again, spiritual sacrifices are different than physical ones. The physical sacrifices were things like bulls and goats and and doves and grain offerings and, and drink offerings and all these physical things. Well, now we offer up things like worship and praise and thanksgiving. And these kinds of things are the sacrifices that we offer to God. So when you come to church, you're really coming. And as you gather together, you are forming a temple you as priests minister within that temple, offering to God your worship and praise. And God then comes and inhabits that temple. Because you remember that we just read in Ephesians chapter 2, in whom you are also built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. And just like the presence of God dwelt inside the, the Old Testament temple, so the presence of God dwells inside the New Testament temple, which is his church. And so um, we collectively together are the temple of God. Now let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And we'll see that... <clears throat> Paul takes up this concept of <clears throat> the church being a temple. <clears throat> Notice 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 16. He says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, all of those are plurals. He's not talking about individual people. We're going to look at that a chapter later. He's talking about the church collectively, and he's saying to the church at Corinth, he's saying, know you not that you collectively, all of you people in Corinth put together, are the temple of God. And what dwells in the temple of God? The presence of God, right? The Spirit of God dwells in you. And so when we gather together as a church, the Spirit of God comes and dwells here and inhabits the temple. 
And then, of course, when we break up and separate up and go away, the temple is, is temporarily deconstructed and uh, just becomes a building uh, that um, is, is of no consequence. But when we are gathered together, we form the temple. Now, notice what it says in verse 17. If any man defiles the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you collectively as a church constitute. So that's the reason why we can't allow things to happen in the church that are a defilement of God's temple. So we don't allow open, blatant, unrepentant sin to take place in our church any more than some Gentile could just walk into the Holy of Holies and have a look around. It didn't work. Uh, those people were struck dead. They were cast out. And um, so uh, in the same way, the New Testament temple, which is the church made up of the living stones, which are the believers, uh, is a holy dwelling place of God. And that makes church really a special place. When you come to church and you're here as, as the living stones making up this spiritual temple, the Spirit of God and the Son of God and the presence of God comes and manifests himself here with a degree of intensity uh, and, and, and a degree of power that occurs nowhere else. Not in your home, not in your car, nowhere else. Because those places don't constitute a temple of the collective people of God together. Now, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. <clears throat> Here we have another concept of the temple. And that is, is that each individual person is a temple of God. All right, so we've looked at the collective concept. Now notice the individual concept. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, flee fornication. That's sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside of his body, but he that commits fornication sins against his own body. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own. For you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirits, which are God's. So not only do the collective believers who are each living stones, when they come together, constitute a temple, but each individual believer, as he just goes throughout life, is himself a temple of God. And so all the little temples come together, and that's why they're living stones, and they make a corporate temple. And just like the Spirit of God dwells in you, and he doesn't just dwell in people in general, in the same way the Spirit of God dwells in his church when it's gathered together, just not out there floating around in general. You know, a lot of people say, well, you know, I worship God in the woods. You know, I go out and I sit by the stream and I see the birds in the sky and the leaves, and that's, that's, that's my temple. That's where I worship God. The only problem is that's not God's temple, and that's not where he shows up. 
Jesus said with reference to the church that where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. Now, am I saying that Jesus isn't out by the creek? I'm not saying that at all. Jesus is omnipresent, so he's everywhere at the same time with the totality of his being. And if I'm a Christian and I individually am a temple of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is in me. But when the church gathers together, Jesus is there in a greater way than when he's just with me individually and in a greater way when he's just there in his general omnipresence that he has at all times and all places. So when I say he's there in a greater way, what I mean is in a greater degree of manifestation. Was God omnipresent throughout the whole uh, nation of Israel? You bet he was. Was he with individual Jews like David and Solomon? Sure he was. But where did God want everybody to come and gather for worship? At the temple. Because that was the place where his special presence was most greatly manifested and where his worship and fellowship and teaching was most fully accomplished. And that's why people, we've got to get away from this individualistic mentality that says, I can go worship God on my own. I don't need the church. Jesus didn't feel that way. And the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible tells us that um, there's a general presence. There's a presence within us. But then there's that special presence when we all gather together. And that's why church is the very center of our spiritual lives. And that's why the vast majority of the means of grace that help us grow are in the church. And that's why we need to be in church. Um, let's turn now to First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. <clears throat> and we'll look at our, our memory verse today. In 2 Corinthians, um, the Corinthians uh, were in a very, very wicked city. And in that city, there were a lot of false religions and as a result, false temples that worshipped false gods. And the Corinthians used to go to these temples and some of them had ritual prostitution in them. Uh, almost all of them had uh, sacrificial uh, offerings and there were sacrificial meals and food to be eaten there and those types of things. And after they became Christians, they were tempted to go back to these temples and participate in the sexual immorality and to uh, eat of the food. And what is being said in First and Second Corinthians, among other things, is look at you got to make a clean break with your past religious practices and your past sexual immorality, you need to come out from that behavior and from that worship and from those activities and you need to um, follow God's morality and you need to participate in God's worship in God's house and you need to be separate from those others. Now, notice what he says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and in verse 16. Well, we'll start out at verse 14. He says, 
Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion has light with darkness? What concord has Christ with Belial, or what part has he that believeth with an infidel? Now here's our verse, verse 16. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are, you collectively, you in the plural here, not you singular. You collectively are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them, plural, okay, and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. So what he's saying here to the Corinthians is, look, you collectively are the temple of God. And he says, why are you living stones that make up the true temple of God? Why are you going to these other temples that are abhorrent to me? He says, leave those other temples. Keep this temple of the new covenant church pure. And he says, if you do... I will dwell in your midst and I will walk in your midst and I will be your God and you will be my people. So this is not just a directive to uh, individual believers, though there are directives here to individual believers. This is also a directive to the church corporate and a declaration of that church that it plural. He doesn't say you singular. He says ye plural. Um, and so therefore... Um, he speaks of the, the new covenant church as this temple. Now, we want to close then with Acts chapter 15, the book of Acts chapter 15. And this is the famous Jerusalem council that you're all familiar with, where there was a big debate going on as to whether the Gentiles had to become Jews before they could become Christians. And some said that the Gentiles had to be circumcised and brought into Judaism. And then after being brought into Judaism, they could then convert to Christianity. And of course, that was denied. And in Acts chapter 15, we'll start out at verse 13. Acts 15, 13. And after they had held their peace, all these guys gave their testimonies about how the Gentiles were saved without becoming Jews. After they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simon hath declared how God did at the first visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophet as it is written. Now he's going to quote out of Amos chapter 9. Now it's fascinating what he says. Notice verse 16. After this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, the temple of David, which is fallen down. The temple was destroyed when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed um, Jerusalem. And I will build again the ruins thereof. He's clearly talking about a building, isn't he? I will build again the ruins thereof and I will set it up that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. 
when Jesus came back, not only was the throne of David restored, but the temple of David was restored. It had been all broken down and destroyed, and Jesus is rebuilding this temple. And what's he rebuilding it with? Gentiles. Not stones and timbers and cloth and gold and silver. So the point is, is that the apostles recognized that the temple of David was being rebuilt through Jesus Christ by the conversion of some Jews and a huge number of Gentiles. And thus the temple of David was going to be rebuilt. So what we see from these passages, and there are many others we could have looked at, is that Jesus is building the temple that God promised to David that his son would build. And um, what happened when Solomon finished the temple? God came down to earth, right? And when the new covenant temple is finished, guess what's going to happen? Jesus is coming back. He's going to take his temple and indwell it forever. So that's why we say when the last believer is saved, when the last stone is put in place in the temple, then comes the end. Solomon was a long time building the temple, I think 46 years as I recall. And um, it's been 2,000 years now that Jesus has been building the temple. And he will continue to build it until it's done. And when it's done, he'll come and indwell it and take it to be with himself. So we see Jesus then as the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He was the son of David. He was the son of God. And he built God the temple. Sat on the throne of David forever and ever. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the unity of the scriptures and how the Old Testament foreshadows and declares the new. Thank you for the blessing, Father, of the new covenant temple. We don't have to travel to Israel, to Jerusalem to find the temple, but it's wherever a local church meets. There is the temple of God. Thank you, Father, that Jesus is building his church. And Father, we pray that as he sees fit to inhabit it with his presence, that we might see fit to inhabit it with ours. May we not neglect the temple that Jesus attends and indwells and in which he manifests his presence. Thank you that we can come and meet with him each Sunday. And Father, I pray that as we do so, we would know his power and his presence, his saving grace in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.